From those in the know to those who need to know, this is the Indie Weekly Podcast. All right. Hey, how's it going? Another episode of the Indie Weekly Podcast coming up. So this conversation that we're sharing from last year's uh, edition of the Indie 101 Music Conference is, uh, well, it's one that I absolutely love. Like, honestly, one of the most entertaining and fascinating conversations maybe we've ever had, certainly being shared here on the podcast. It is with none other than Michael Anthony Alago, um, one of the most infamous and our men in the history of rock music. Just an extraordinary story his life has been as um, kind of an awkward young gay Puerto Rican kid who grew up to be the man who signed Metallica and become the kind of face of A&R in the hard rock world. And then also went on to work with the likes of like John Lydon of the Sex Pistols and Nina Simone. Um, just full of outstanding stories of music and life in new york city in the 70s 80s 90s and um and even better is talking to michael anthony alago is martin atkins who himself um, i'm sure many of you know martin himself has lived an extraordinary life in the music industry and is full of outstanding stories and is just a naturally gregarious and entertaining guy so putting these two together made for one hell of a conversation so um i don't want to uh, waste any more time getting to it uh, so that's coming up in just a minute but as always before we get to this week's conversation we must first acknowledge that the land on which indie week is based is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, Ashinabe, Métis, and Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Of course, we must also thank our sponsors and funders. Those are Slate Music, CD Baby, Actor Racks, CMRRA, Lyric Find, Banzoogle, SEMA, City of Toronto, Global Affairs Canada, Ontario Creates, Factor, Seneca College, and the SOCAN Foundation. We must also acknowledge that this project is funded in part by the Government of Canada. Without the support of all of them, we couldn't do the work we do for the music community. So a big thank you to all those companies, organizations, and government bodies. All right, now to this week's conversation. I met Michael Anthony Lago through Martin when Michael Anthony Lago had an online showing of his documentary last year, which is amazing. So if you ever get a chance to see the documentary, go for it. And I know Michael also has a book. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to pass the mic over to my good friend, Martin, to uh, introduce the session and take it away. Thank oh, you, thanks. Darryl. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Daryl. Um, it's great to be part of uh, Indie uh, 101 again. See all of my friends uh, uh, online here. And this is this is special for me. Um, to, to, to sit and chat with, with Michael Alago because um, we go way back. Uh, we're old AF. Uh, um, I think we go back over 40 years. Um, Michael has a ridiculously storied history at a very high level um, in the music business um, and pivoted. Um, he went from... Um, listening to records in his apartment to creating his own situation, I think, at the Ritz uh, in New York City, um, going on to sign Metallica, working with Nina Simone, being involved with um, White Zombie, um, pivoting to become a photographer, uh, having a book, I Am, 
Michael Alago. I can't, oh, there you go, there it is, um, which is tremendous. And um, a really great documentary called Who the Fuck is That Guy? Um, so I'm, I'm really um, happy uh, to welcome Michael to the chat. Uh, how are things going, Michael? You're in oh, New York. Hey, Martin. It's so nice to see you. Yes, I haven't done a lot of traveling recently. I only went to Detroit in the past two and a half years. But yes, I'm, I'm at home in New York City. And um, here we are. And I'm, I'm thrilled. Well, I, I was thinking about you. Uh, yes, obviously, because of today. But also, what is that festival that's happening in California right now? Is that Cool World? It seemed like a bunch of bands that we were either we were in or we signed or we would like. Really? Uh, I'm Martin, I have no idea what you're talking about. Really? Yeah, Cool World. Or, was it Cool World or am I hallucinating? You know, I, I have no idea. I, I think went... it was Blondie, Bauhaus, PIL, Morrissey. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, yes. it was like, but which also seems like a, a great lineup, but also a nightmare standing in a field for all day. I can't stand in a field all day in this day and age ever. No, no. So, so um, could you take us to the the beginning of of all of this for you? I'm sure there are people that lots of things to get to, and we will take questions in the chat. Sure. But how did this all start for you? Oh, here we go. Uh, I was a young kid growing up in Brooklyn, um, and uh, I love music. You know, like I say in my book, I am Michael Alago, uh, breathing music, signing Metallica, beating death. Um, I believe I came out of the womb loving music. Um, I didn't play an instrument, but that didn't matter. Uh, I used to sit on my stoop in Brooklyn and I would buy seven inch records for like 59 cents each. So whether those records were um, Aretha Franklin or Grand Funk Railroad. Um, okay. I was just sitting there. I would just sit by myself and just listen to music. We could fast forward. Um, I am now 19 years old. It's probably uh, 1979. I'm going to the School of Visual Arts. I'm walking down a street in the East Village, East 11th Street, and I see a sign on a door of a um, Art Deco building. It says uh, video club opening, resumes wanted. And I thought, video club opening? What the heck does that mean? Right. So of course I go into the, um, the venue and it's really, it's, it's beautiful. It's Art Deco inside. And, um, and when it opened up in 1980, it opened up as the Ritz. Uh, people know it as uh, Webster Hall present day. Mm -hmm. I get there and I'm just looking around and there's a man in the balcony that I like uh, that I liken to the Wizard <laughs> of Oz. His name was Jerry Brandt. Rest his soul. He passed last year. Jerry Brandt was an entrepreneur. He discovered the voices of East Harlem, Carly Simon. He worked with Sam Cooke, Muhammad Ali. He helped bring the Rolling Stones to the United States. Now, if I knew that I was sitting there with that guy, I would like freak out. So all I did, all I know is that we talked about music, all types of music, mm -hmm. from the Great American Songbook, to what was happening in 1980. He said, kid, I'm gonna give you a job. You're gonna open my mail, you're gonna answer my phone, and you're gonna get my lunch. And I thought, oh my God, I'm in the music business. And you know what? That really is the beginning of it all for me because I was like a sponge. I was a very quick 
learner and I listened to Jerry talk on the phone with all the booking agents, mm -hmm. um, whether it was Ian Copeland at FBI or Rob Light at ICM. Uh, I listened to all that. And soon enough, I learned how to book a room that held, mm -hmm. I don't know, approximately 15, 1600 people. Mm -hmm. And I was there for three years. Um, and then a friend of mine said, you know, my dad's leaving Warner Brothers and he's going to re-up Elektra Records because in 1983, Elektra was in the crapper. Forgive me. So um, I have a meeting with Bob Krasnow, who is now going to be the chairman of Elektra. And I have that same conversation with him that I had with Jerry. We talked about all kinds of music. And the other the bonus of that was Bob loved art. And, you know, so it's 1980 and Jean-Michel Basquiat and Richard Hamilton and Keith Haring and uh, Robert Longo. All of these artists are just like happening in New York. So that was a little bonus that I knew about all this stuff. He was impressed. And he said, I'm going to call you in two weeks. Two weeks later, I get a call from Bob Krasnow. And he says to me, you know, Michael, I like you. I'm going to give you a job in the A&R department. I was thrilled. I think I cried when we hung up the phone. And then I had to call a friend in the music business and I said, what's A&R mean? <laughs> yeah, honey, he laughed in my face. <laughs> I soon found out it means artist and repertoire. Artist and repertoire for me, I believe is the most important part of a record company still because uh, you know you have to sign great artists and make great records and make sure they sell so that you have a job. And so, uh, that's, that, that's what I did for um, from 1983 to 2005. Okay, so I'm gonna I want, I'm gonna go back a bit. What? So you're in New York, listening yeah. to music. You're out and about all the time. So you were around for CBGB, Mud Club, all of that stuff when New York was different. I was a young person, underage, going out almost every night. I don't know why my mother let me go out. I was going to CBGB from around 1975 till the day they closed its doors, October 15th, 2006. It was my home away from home. You know, I saw everyone there. The Ramones, Patti Smith, The Damned, uh, The Dead Boys, Blondie, uh, Talking Heads, uh, Death School, uh, Eddie, and oh. the Hot, Eddie and the Hot Rods. Oh. I mean, I saw everything there. And it was like a blessing to be a young kid to get into that venue when you weren't really carded for your age back then. But oh. Hilly would say to us, I know you're underage. If I see you with alcohol, you're out of here for the next two weeks. So, you know, we, we would drink everything before we got into um, the venue. <laughs> and then we would be there all night long. And the same thing, if I wound up leaving um, CBGB early, her early is like one o'clock in the morning, right. I would walk up Bowery over to Park Avenue South and go to Max's Kansas City, right. where I saw everyone there from Sid Vicious to, uh, oh God, my brain is stopping already. I don't know. I saw everyone at Max's Kansas City. It was really a hoot. Um, and that's what I did as a young kid. I went out every night. I was scouting and not even knowing that I was scouting. <laughs> so so you're, yes. it wasn't like you just walked into the situation at the Ritz. You were serving your apprenticeship before five years plus before you even sure. walked in yes. to the Ritz to, to work yes. with Jerry. And and I remember those clubs, uh, Danceteria, mm -hmm. uh, 
Peppermint Lounge. Oh my god! Oh there. my goodness! I worked there for just like a minute as well. Wow! A minute. Uh, the, I mean, the, those those were some uh, some some crazy days. So, um, just one more thing uh, about the Ritz. I can't be on a Zoom with you and not ask you to talk about. I think perhaps the most infamous show at the Ritz which I just got on a seven inch single, which tells you how long the show was a bootleg live recording of public image. At the Ritz was that 82 or 83? No, it was uh, May of 1981. Oh, okay. Sure. Wow. Huh? Yeah. So um, could you just briefly let people know what, uh, yeah, what yeah, happened? I'll, tr- I'll try to be brief. Um, so I'm booking uh, this nightclub, the Ritz, which I just told you about. And uh, there was a Friday and Saturday in May um, that I had Bow Wow Wow coming to perform. It was sold out both nights. I get a phone call from Malcolm McLaren and he says, oh, Michael, we're not coming. I said, what do you mean you're not coming? He said, well, you know, Annabella is underage and her mom won't let her travel. I said, Malcolm, she was underage two months ago. (laughs) So like, what the F are you talking about? So I said, well, you know what? We'll pay for her mom to come with her. And he said, well, we're we're not coming. I said, come on, man, you got to be kidding me. It's sold out two nights. It's over 3,000 people. Nobody has seen them before. Everyone is stoked. And he basically said, we're not coming. So I said to him, return the 50% deposit. Did he return that deposit? I think not. Correct. So anyway, so I have to think fast. And I know that Pill are in town to... um, publicized their record, Flowers of Romance. They're at Liz Rosenberg's office over at Warner Brothers. I don't know John yet, but I have never had fear of calling anyone, introducing myself and saying, this is what we're doing. So I call Liz Rosenberg's office and I said, hi, this is Michael Alago over at the Ritz. I'd let them know what happened with Bow Wow Wow. John and Keith and Jeanette said, you know, we're only here to market this record. We have no instruments, there's nothing. I said, well, I'm gonna get you whatever it is that you need. So I don't know, I think I got Keith a Prophet 5 where he could program 45 minutes of music into uh, the keyboard. And um, you know, we had, the Ritz was known from day one of having like this 30 foot white screen where we would um, show all the videos of the day you know, from record companies, from MTV, blah, blah, blah. Well, when they got there that afternoon, they had it in their brain that they wanted to perform behind the screen. (laughs) Nobody wanted them to perform behind the screen. This was not performance art. They thought it was. And so they come on stage, these incredible white lights are shining on the screen. You see only black silhouettes. <laughs> the 1,500 people there could give a yeah. crap about performance <laughs> art. They wanted to see Johnny Rotten, John Lydon in full brilliance, you know? And you know, all he did was he would peek his head out from behind the screen and say, we're never coming out from behind the screen. Well, sure enough, a few minutes later, um, chairs from the balcony and bottles and cans started um, being thrown at the, the screen. Yeah. And uh, that basically, I think it went on maybe for a total of 18 minutes. I'm not sure. And it was the shot heard around the world that night. 
whether it was the 11 o'clock news, whether it was Tim Summers' big article on the event, either in Sounds, NME, or Melody Maker. I think it was Uh, Sounds, yeah. It Sounds, that's right. Okay, then then I think that a day or two later, because, you know, we got Sounds in in the States once a week and usually two days after it was released in the UK. Anyway, that's the story. But the great thing about that story also, um, you know, when the show was over and we were all in the dressing room laughing and screaming and drinking and carrying on, what that did was it cemented a deal of of a friendship with me and John Lydon that right now has also lasted 41 years and we never had a bad word with each other believe it or not well I, I i can't say the same but okay um, I, I i think our paths crossed then because i walked I, it was the only show i didn't do with pill over ah. a five-year period i walked into the loft in new york and the phone was ringing i picked up the phone and there was somebody screaming at me the screen we need thirteen thousand dollars for this screen who and i'm like look i wasn't there i don't know what to tell you Wow. So, um, so let's get back to where we rewound from, which is the beginning um, of working A&R at Electra with Bob Krasnow. Yes. Um, who did you, uh, who were you looking for? What, what, what was your role? Sure. I was a young A&R person. It's 1983. And every day I would get envelopes filled with cassettes or independent vinyl. I also met with publishers, uh, lawyers, um, artists themselves. And uh, that was the beginning of doing A&R in the 80s. You know, um, I don't think I ever signed anyone from a cassette, but I was a person who was out every single night. I was reading all the British publications. I was reading the Canadian publications like a a uh, 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 bloody uh, bloody knuckles and terrorizer and whatever the pub the, the rock and roll pub- and metal publications were in the states. Um, you know, uh, it's uh, at one point um, I'm friends with the, this gentleman, the late great Johnny Z, who had Megaforce Records. He yeah. just passed months ago, unfortunately. Uh, both him and his wife, really just awful stuff. Anyway, John and I became colleagues very quickly. He came to see me at Electra. He brought me the first Metallica record, Kill 'Em All. He brought me Anthrax and Raven. Um, and uh, they had money to make records. They just didn't have money to do anything else with those records. So I listened to those records and I thought he wanted me to sign Raven. So I gave him $5,000 to sign Raven. He gave me a, a fabulous demo back. But the problem was I heard Kill Em All. And I thought I'd never heard anything like this before. These young people were putting together British heavy metal, traditional hard rock, punk, and speed. And I thought, these are people I have to have in my life. Mm-hmm. So I think I saw them twice live before that infamous night at Roseland in August of 1984. I saw them then. I brought Bob Krasnow and our head of um, radio, Mike Bone. And uh, all I know is once the show started, all those beers went down really quick. I made my way to the front of the stage. And I really thought it was the greatest thing I ever heard in my entire life. I went backstage after that. And um, they all looked at me like, 
who is this drunk person? Because I'm screaming and hollering and I'm kissing <laughs> Lars. And James <laughs> is like, who is this? And he said, this is Michael Alago. He, he runs the A&R department at, um, uh, he's one of the A&R guys at Electra. And I guess they thought we're putting our hands in this crazy young person's, our life in this crazy young person's hands. And the answer was yes. The next day they came to my office. We had Chinese food and beer. I gave them everything on vinyl from the MC5, the Stooges, uh, the Doors, uh, Cliff Burton, uh, God rest his soul, wanted everything avant-garde from our, um, uh, a, a label we distributed called None Such. And that was oh, the beginning good. of my relationship with Metallica. And a few months later, we, you know, our business affairs, uh, Electra business affairs, we're speaking with Megaforce Business Affairs and we signed the band. And as they say, the rest is history. That signing changed the face of heavy metal and rock and roll because every label then wanted their own version hmm. of Metallica. So when you say business affairs, so on the one hand, you just mentioned business affairs. On sure. the other hand, you're screaming drunk and lunatic yes. in, the, in the dressing room. Could you describe... Can I describe what drunk and and, and no, no 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 the 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 strategy was oh. that were there meetings did people look and go we think heavy metal could be big in these markets was it because there's so much strategy now yes. to do with everything yes. we're looking at the demographics and we could be big in China you know mm -hmm. whatever sure. um, was there any of that or were you, was this seat of the pants feelings uh -huh. Uh -huh. and vibe. Uh, Bob Krasnow trusted his A&R people. You were either going to sink or swim. I was going to swim. So that next day, uh, I was sober and I talked to him about the history of Electra. And uh, I knew this was not, in 1984, a radio-friendly band. So even in our simplest uh, marketing approach, we knew we had to keep the band on the road for as long as possible. You know, in one of our marketing meetings, someone said, are we editing any of the songs on the album? And I thought to myself, editing for what? There is no radio for this. And if I ever called Lars and says, can we edit a few things? They would hang up on me. Uh, they would never call me back. And I, they'd lose, I'd lose, they lose all respect for me. In any right. event, it really was very simple in the 80s. Um, you know, I played, kill, I gave kill them all to every single person at the company. Um, they were in the middle of making Ride the Lightning. So I gave everybody dats or CDs of Ride the Lightning. And everyone just kind of knew because I really explained in detail at these marketing meetings what this was all about. And, uh, you know, they were, they were part of this underground metal scene. They were the best of all those thrash bands coming up. And, um, Simply, that's what we did. We just put them on the road. So, so as they start to yes. succeed and explode, yeah, does that does that give you latitude to do more, take risks, or does it paint you into a corner as the metal guy at Electra? How okay. how did things proceed from there? Sure. Um, yes, people were like, "Oh, Michael's the guy to go to at Electra." for metal. 
great, great. But I personally loved all kinds of music. But after Metallica, I did sign Metal Church. I did sign Flotsam and Jetsam at some point because Bob knew that I knew about a lot of different music. He said, Michael, I just signed this girl from Boston named Tracy Chapman. You're her A&R you're person. And I was like, oh, my God. I went to see her in Cambridge. She was mwah, magnificent, really magnificent. Uh, you know, Brian Koppelman um, told his, that he, him and Tracy were going to school at Tufts in Boston. He told his dad, Charles Koppelman, who had uh, SBK Music Publishing about her. Charles spoke to Kraz. Kraz said to me, her A&R person. Really what I did was I listened to all the tunes. Her and David Kirshenbaum were already um, recording the record. So I was just in there, you know, putting my two cents in really. Uh, and when the record was done, I believe I had it mixed with the late great George Marino at Sterling Sound. And, uh, you know, even though I was in the NR department, I always put my two cents in where it didn't belong. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I spoke to Tracy about album packaging and everything. Um, so even though people like to corner me into uh, he's the heavy metal guy, I didn't mind that because I was the one doing the signings. You know, at one point in 1986, um, Bob and I took Leiden out to dinner and I decided, we decided to sign Pill. I also picked up their records live in Tokyo and this is what you want, this is what you get because I believe it's Virgin overseas and in Canada. They weren't putting them out here. And right. then we had the pleasure of, of putting out our own record called Album. Right. Fabulous recording. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think I probably answered more of the question than you wanted me to answer, but no, it's uh, it's 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 cool as hell. So so what I comes sometimes go on forever. Yeah, it's great. So what comes next? I know that there's an involvement with um, a very uh, young white zombie, um, and and then also somewhere uh, a relationship with Nina Simone. How how do both of well, either of those right. about. we're gonna have to let's see yeah um my a and r career and i'm going to keep this part short i wound up leaving electra at some point because they weren't paying me the money i felt like i was uh that i was deserving of so i went to david geffen or they, geffen came to me and i went to meet them in california uh they hired me i stayed there for three years where i signed the misfits king roberts from alice cooper's band and white zombie <laughs> then at one point i went back to electra i said bob please take me back i'm so unhappy <laughs> and he said okay i'll take you back so we have to do a little back and forth because okay. it's 1992, 1991. I saw Nina Simone, my favorite artist of all time, bar none. Um, I had started going to see her live since the 80s. And um, the minute we met each other, we liked each other. I was very young. She was already, you know, an elder, probably 15, 20 years older than me. And... Um, I was just totally in love with Nina Simone, like in love with Nina Simone. I respected all the recordings that she made and I would follow her on the road. And at some point I said, I really want to sign you to Electra. Uh, Bob finally said, oh yeah, yeah, this one's never going to shut up if we don't sign her. I signed her. We made the record at Chick Corea's uh, studio in Los Angeles with Andre Fisher. Andre Fisher was married to Natalie Cole at the time. He was the drummer in Chaka Khan's Rufus, 
And um, we made a record with a 50 piece orchestra. It was lush and beautiful. And it was about love and loneliness and loss. And it was called The Single Woman. It did okay. Um, You know, she was a tyrant sometimes, even though uh, we kind of loved each other. She did no press for the record except um, a big article that James Gavin uh, wrote uh, in the New York Times. And then I put her on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, which almost turned into a huge disaster because she wanted her money up front. And uh, you have to sign a waiver. It's union. So nobody's giving you cash. So I said, Nina, there is no cash. Sign this piece of paper. She said, I'm not signing it. Little did I know that Jay Leno is behind the door. And he knocks like a gentleman and says, are you Mr. Alago? I said, I am. He says, can I speak to you? And I thought, oh, boy. We go to another green room. And he says, what is all that going on that she wants cash and she's not signing the uh, agreement? I said, well, you know how old school artists are, <laughs> Jay. Oh, boy, he was not pleased with me or her. And uh, so at one point, like this went on for so long that he knocked on the door again and he said, here's the $750. I can't talk about this anymore. And I gave her the money and I was furious with her because it was The Tonight Show. In any event, that was the record I made with her. Uh, Unfortunately, about 10 years later, in April of 2003, she passed away. Only at 70 years old, rather young. But uh, Nina Simone is my favorite artist ever. Right then in 92, I decide, oh, I'm unhappy at Electra again. I go back to Geffen. Don't ask. It's a long story. And I wind up signing White Zombie, which I just found this so fun. This um, signed album cover for their first record, La Sexto Sisto, Devil of Music, Volume 1, produced and mixed by Andy Wallace. We loved Andy Wallace. We loved the sound of his Slayer records. So we had him produce this record. Uh, the fun part um, at Geffen is that, you know, I was telling everybody this is going to sell a million units out of the box, blah, blah, blah. So I'm in a marketing meeting in Los Angeles. I'm always in these marketing meetings in Los Angeles, and it stalls at around 180,000 units. And, you know, everybody's like, okay, Alago, what are we doing now? But I don't know if it was moments later, days later, a week later. Mike Judge decided Beavis and Budhead were going to make White Zombie their favorite new band. So they started playing the single. Um, what was the single again? Oh, my God. Oh, Thunder Kiss 65. Thunder Kiss 65. And um, it was getting played on the Beavis and Budhead show, on other programs on Headbangers Ball. And that immediately catapulted that record to a million units. We didn't know that was gonna be a marketing strategy at all. But (laughs) bless those little creatures, Beavis and Butthead. Um, So that's just a fun story about uh, alternative marketing. (laughs) So so you, it seems like you're kind of, uh, a pop star of your own making, but we're, we're in the A&R world, bouncing from labels to labels. Um, what's sure. going on in your life? It starts off with heavy drinking in on the in the club scene. Where does it go from there? Because we came through the 80s and now uh, into the 90s. And where does this end up? 
Mm -hmm. It's so funny because I, I always forget this part because it wasn't part of the big A&R picture, but I wound up going to Chris Blackwell, who owned Island Records. Oh, Island, okay. I went to his uh, label called Palm Pictures. 50% independent features, 50% um, record label. Mm -hmm. uh, and I worked with Local H from Chicago. Uh, I had Jack Douglas produce them. I worked with Speed Dealer from Dallas, Texas. And I had Jason Newstead from Metallica produce them. And I signed uh, Chris Jericho's band, Fozzy. And uh, I think we all produced that record, or at least I executive produced that record. I stayed there for three years and I left. And at one point, <laughs> God, this is so insane. I worked for the revamped Uni Records, where our three artists out of the box were Steve Earle, Transvision Bamp, and I signed one of my all-time favorite bands from New York, Swans. Oh. And we had Bill Laswell produce their record. It was the quietest Swans record in the whole wide world. It oh. was delicious. It was gorgeous. Now, what was the question you asked me, Martin? Well, and it's just, you know, we, we I put out a Swans album on, on my label, Invisible. I oh. play, I played Baran on a track, and then Michael yeah. sang on a pig face song. I love it. But, you know, um, so I, I'm I was... sorry I threw you off course here. No, no. Um, I, I was wondering where, ah. personally, sure. so, what, what, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm moving towards how you how you became sober now um, sure. i just wanted to, to to look at that thread a little bit yeah i was a young person who had to go out every night and i did have to go out every night because i was entertaining like i said publishers managers lawyers and artists so i had that corporate card out every single night that corporate card uh led me to a lot of drinking and i liked drinking and I was very funny when I was drinking until I was not. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, okay, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I was uh, an arrogant jerk after hours of drinking. Um, I had a long drinking career as well. I was shocked and surprised that I never got fired from any job because you know what? I always showed up for my work. Even if I showed up at three o'clock in the afternoon, closed my office door and waited till the pounding <laughs> lifted. Um, I, you know, I was, have always been a blessed person because I've gone through stuff like drinking beyond, drinking, uh, crack smoking, ecstasy, mushrooms, vodka, Jägermeister, and, you know, not caring about who I was. And in not caring and being outrageous, I acquired HIV. And um, that, almost, that was one of the things that almost killed me. Um, during that time period, uh, now we're in the 90s, and I get full-blown AIDS. And this is right before any medication was even available. I had an extraordinary doctor, Barbara Starrett, excuse me, who worked in the laboratories. And she was also working over at uh, St. Vincent's AIDS ward. That it was nuts what was going on in the 80s and 90s and everybody acquiring this disease. She liked me so much that every morning on her bicycle, she would come to my home and see how I was doing. Uh -huh. at, some point, I mean, 
I mean, she has her own work to do over yeah. at the hospitals yeah. every morning. So at one point I had IV vitamin drips. The other arm, I had IV something called pentamidine and that helped so that I wouldn't get pneumonia in my lungs. Yeah. And um, it was like Dallas Buyers Club, that Matthew McConaughey movie. Yeah. Where we were taking shit, ooh, excuse me, that came from Mexico. Pills, what were those pills? I don't know. Just take them. I said, Barbara, you're keeping me alive. I'm taking those pills. Something came up called. Um... Oh, boy. Oh, it begins with an A. Shucks. There was a medicine that came up that she said, Michael, I don't want you to take this. I said, Barbara, you keep me alive. I'm not taking it. I'll remember in a minute. A year right. later, something called uh, sequinavir came up. That was the first medicine I started taking. I started getting better. I was wasting. I was maybe 80 pounds. Um, I went back to work at Electra, And, uh, you know, it was the 90s and people were hearing about this from all over the place and everybody had questions and can I hug Michael? Can I kiss Michael? Can I shake his hand? And all those questions were answered with really, yes. Um, so I got better and thank God, you know, I never got that sick again. Now, of course, HIV doesn't uh, go away, but uh, it be, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's livable, it's treatable in this day and age if you're taking care of yourself. Well, finally, after many years of drinking and drugging, I got sober in um, October 21st, 2007, um, 14 years ago. And um, that changed my life. And it gave me a, a new life. It's not like I didn't like my old life. My professional life, I loved. My personal life was a, a big mess. So um, I don't know. I thank God. I thank a higher power. I thank the universe that I found a 12-step program. Here we are 14 years later. And because of um, the COVID virus, like I needed another virus, like a hole in the head um, for two years, um, we do Zoom. And I do that every morning at nine o'clock in the morning, seven days a week. I don't argue with myself. And what that does is it just puts my head in the right place so uh -huh. that I can get on with the day, so I can be of service to other people, so I can help other people with addiction. Um, and it's a wonderful thing. And, you know, my life now is I show up for everything. I'm a responsible man. Um, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. So here we are, Martin. Well, well, thank you for, I just think it's important to, to look at that stuff as I, I continue with my own sobriety, which sure. you've been very influential in. And I thank you for that. Now, I don't know if you know that we were just, we were just jabbering one day. We were on the phone and I, I was talking about drinking and you stopped you stopped. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. What's going on? Michael stopped talking. <laughs> and uh, um, I'd mentioned drinking and sobriety and you became very serious. And it, it, it uh, you know, it, it, it made me treat my sobriety with more seriousness. So um, I just, I just wanted to, to thank you for that. Wow. So we, we have some questions in the, in the chat here, which I'll just randomly look at. Um, uh oh. <laughs> um, what? Well, 
What this is this interesting stuff. What what strategy do you recommend for indie artists looking to get signed in today's market? Do you really want to get signed to major labels? I don't know. I haven't worked at a major label since 2005. You know, indie artists, some indie artists like to stay indie and some of them are very, very smart and they know about marketing and promotion and how to get on the road, uh, opening up for either uh, larger bands or playing in all the small music venues uh, across the United States. Um, I don't know. So that's, I think, the best answer I have for you at the moment. Well, um, that's, a, that's a good answer. Um, are human beings still a thing with A&R or is it all just money ball? Oh, I love that. Stats and machines. Yeah. You know what pisses me off is. Um, give me the question again. A no, human no, being. Oh, yeah. Are, are human beings still a thing with they yeah. and these days? Or is it all just moneyball statistics and machines? Well, you know, whoever asked that question, that's a great question. It's always about money eventually, especially yeah. if you work for a major corporation. Um, you know, uh, recently I tried to get an art. I didn't try. I got an artist signed to an independent label who are now distributed through a major. And this, these these young people were from South Florida. They're called Ether Coven. And um, they got signed uh, to uh, Century Media. And then they were on Century for a year and they got dropped. Now, a lot of people passed on them because when I spoke to an A&R person, they said their numbers are terrible. You know, listen, independent artists sometimes are only gonna get so many numbers on mm -hmm. Spotify and uh, YouTube and all of those places before somebody major or somebody from an independent label comes and picks them up and helps them get to another level, you know? And sometimes, you know, those numbers don't tell you if somebody is great or not. It's a freaking number. So that all pisses me off. Um, but thank God I work independently myself these days and I get to pick and choose what artists I'd like to work with, even if their numbers are not great. Um, I think I answered that question to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I would say, sometimes when you see great numbers, it just means there's a sixth or seventh member of the team jacking up the numbers. That's yes. yes. a different skill set. So, you know, um, Correct. so, so um, um, are you asked, so you, you have this decades of experience. Sure. Are you, are you asked these days to kind of A&R manage, guide, mentor artists is, is that sure. a thing? Well, it's a thing for me because I still love music. I still go out. Uh, people know about me even more now because of my movie and my book, but I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. Um, you know, I remember after my last days over at Palm Pictures in 2004 or five, at some point, Cindy Lauper called me up in 2009 and she said, Michael, you know, I love you as an A&R person and, uh, you know, we've been friends forever. I'm going to make a dance record. Could you help organize this for me? Um, uh, and I said, absolutely. I adore Cindy. I have so much respect for her. She's classic. So we made a, a dance record called Bring It to the Brink. 
It did okay. In 2010, she said, I liked working with you. I want to make a blues album. I said, a blues album? She said, Michael, have you ever made a blues record? I said, no, Cindy. She said, neither have I. We're on the same play, uh, playing field. So we made a fabulous blues record. I went up to her apartment on the Upper West Side every day. Um, we were on the computer. We, we had blues box sets of blues recordings on vinyl. And uh, we ate lots of Chinese food. And I'm, I'm big on Chinese food. And, you know, we started pulling songs um, this is where my A&R comes into play. Um, we start pulling songs, but we would twist them from, to have them come from a woman's point of view. We found a, um, a great uh, producer named Scott Bomar, who has his own studio in Memphis. We went down to um, meet with him. We really liked him a lot. You know, he was friends with all of Al Green's band and all of Isaac Hayes' band. So these people were sterling. You know, of course, he knew Ann Peebles, who sang I Can't Stand the Rain. Yeah. He, you know, all of these people. And we just thought, this is our guy. We made this incredible record called Memphis Blues. It got nominated for a um, Grammy for best... Uh, blues recording, uh, present day blues recording. I forget the exact category name. We didn't win, but what it said to us independently again, was that we did a great, great job and it got noticed. So these days, you know, like I said, at one point, these people from uh, South Florida, Ether Coven, asked me would I come and see them. I heard their recording, their independent recording. I thought these people are never getting on the radio. I don't care because I feel the music. I never signed anything that I didn't feel in my heart or in my brain. I don't care. People can say, well, you know, that band's gonna sell a million units. That's very nice. They have awful lyrics as far as I'm concerned. And I just don't feel them at all. So I was always one that was very specific about who I signed. I still go out there all the time to see artists, you know, whether it's at the Bowery Ballroom or in Brooklyn at St. Vitus and all the new music clubs that open in Brooklyn. Like yeah. two nights ago, I went to something called Black and Blue Ball. Uh, uh, and it was all hardcore bands, whether it was Agnostic Front or Sub-Zero, Sick of It All. And yeah. I just love it. I love the energy. Um, and, you know, I, I just love going out still. I, nothing's going to stop me from going to hear all types of new music. So... Um... That, and, uh, th that's wild. That's wild. Well, I just, uh, I'm never, I never tire of any of this stuff. I well, want to go out and hear everything. Well, so now here you are with yes. your, your book, I Am Michael Alargo. Um, and I wonder if you find yourself talking to the publisher or, you know, in a situation like, you know, Nina Simone wouldn't do radio or, you know, I, I now you're the artist, the, the subject of a book. Uh, how does your history inform how you're working with the book? Uh, are you touring? What's going, all of that stuff. Sure. But, you know, I think I'm going to answer uh, something uh, or I'm going to tell you something before the book. Because, okay. Because um, there's a movie out about me. <sighs> called Who the Fuck Is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. Um, it was on Netflix for three years. Our contract was up. We found um, 
one of our uh, distributors, Rugged Entertainment, decided they were going to re-release the movie. So they re-released the movie um, March 25th, 2022. And so we are now on Amazon Prime. We are on YouTube. We're on Google Play and we're on Xbox. So these four platforms have got me out into a bigger audience. And it's really quite wonderful because you could see the movie now on any of those platforms. You could rent it, you could buy the movie. And we had so much fun making it. And you know, in the movie is all the artists that I have great respect for. And I guess they have some respect for me because they said yes. So James Hetfield, Metallica, John Lydon, Cindy Lauper, uh, 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 Rob Zombie, White Zombie, all these people are in the, the film and it's really a fun, fun film. During the course of making that, a little company called Backbeat Books asked me if I had more stories to tell. And I was like, <clears throat> more stories? I have a gazillion <laughs> stories to tell. So they decided to sign me for a book deal. Unfortunately, the book came out May, in May, no, in March of 2020. Yeah. Damn it just when COVID hit. But that Friday night, I had a sold out show at uh, Reading at the Bowery Electric on the Bowery. I had about a hundred people hug and kiss and can I sit on your lap? Can I take a picture? And of course I say yes to it all. Yeah. Yeah. Thank goodness that Monday, Tuesday, the next week when I heard about, it was all over the news about this uh, virus. I, um, I don't know how far, was it a month later that I got a test? I had no COVID, thank God, then. Um, anyway, so the book came out then in 2020 and uh, my book company went on furlough. So I do what any independent artist and whoever asked that question, I'm gonna repeat myself, what any independent artist would do. Uh, I hired an independent, another independent um, a publicity company called Adrenaline PR. They did oh, yeah. press. They did press for me for three months. And Maria, after, Maria, Ferraro. Maria Ferraro, we love her and, and her gals over there. Um, after that, you know, I couldn't afford, and, uh, and and the book publishing company wasn't paying for anything more. So I just did it all myself. So you could find me every day under Michael Anthony Alago at Instagram, and every single day at uh, Facebook, and I occasionally do that Twitter thing. Um, but you know, I really did it, honest to God, all myself. And I am persistent. People know about me after all these years. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky enough to do tons of podcasts, whether it was Chris Jericho's podcast, Rob from Machine Head's podcast, all of these podcasts I got to do. And that put the book out there in a, in a, in a kind of a big way. So that's where I am right now, still marketing and promoting my movie and my book and talking to you. Well, and being and, here at Indy, what is it, Indy 101? Yeah, yeah. And uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to having you go out on the road and have people Me. experience just like sitting in your company for a while because um, there are some stories. There are some stories we missed that. I know we we have to wrap up in just a second. Okay. But we 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 skipped over the um, 
uh, Nina Simone bubble bath story? You shared yeah, a bubble bath with me? Last time I saw Nina Simone was July of 1999. She was doing something called the Meltdown series that Nick Cave was promoting. July 99, I went to her hotel with two dozen white roses and a bottle of champagne. And she said, darling, sugar lips, you want to take a bubble bath? I said, yes, I do. She got naked. <laughs> I kept my boxer shorts on. There's the Sure story. you did. I sure did, you did. I, did. I swear to God. <laughs> And that was the last time I saw her in person. Well, 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 that's that's magic. And I, I just, I did also just want to mention because um, we, we, uh, I, I know you're good friends with John Lydon, and I did see some photographs from Cool World yesterday, and he's, I think he's, he's lost a decent amount of weight, and he's looking really healthy. Absolutely, so even I think though, I saw that same photograph. Yeah, and even though we we don't always, we get along-ish sometimes, it's good to see him taking care of himself. And, Absolutely. Uh, so, um, well, thank you, Michael. Uh, this has been great for me. I love hanging out with you. Oh, and um, thank you so much. Uh, and thanks for doing this. Uh, I think it's I, I think it's time to hand it back to Daryl to wrap this up. Wow. Uh, I, I love this kind of history and these stories, especially thinking about everything is online. Like if you want to know who played at 9.05 p.m. yesterday, you can find it. Like Pearl Jam doesn't have a drummer right now. All that's available online. These stories you can only get through these means. Uh, I love that. And uh, Michael, I've got one question for you, uh -oh, okay. if, if I may. What is the one that got away? The artist that you're like, oh, I wanted to sign them so bad, but oh. they, they made it out of your hands. Right. People ask me that a lot. I don't know. You know, like I can answer that, but not in the exact direct way you are asking it of me. I wish that I signed Slayer and I oh. didn't. So all I did was all these years, I stayed friends with Gary Holt and uh, I go see them all over the place. Um, but they are the one band that I wish I signed. Don't know why I didn't, but uh, it's okay. I still had a, a good A&R life. Oof. Oh, that, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty good answer, I would say. Uh, and I'm gonna follow up with a part two. Please. Uh, what, is there a Canadian artist that you signed? I don't know. Is there? Is this a trick <laughs> question? Uh, don't uh, be ridiculous, Daryl. <laughs> oh, oh, um, no, I don't think I signed any Canadian artists. That's fair. That's fair. No, just because when Raven came up and they're British, but I remember there was a Canadian oh. metal sort of stream through that time because uh, Raven were kind of big in Canada during that time. Yes, and... I remember our very good friend, uh, Al Mayer, Attic Records. Right. Right. And, yes. you know, he had extraordinary people on his label from Lee Aaron to um, Lips's band, Anvil. Anvil. And, yeah. Uh, oh, and I Mother Earth. I almost signed I Mother Earth. I but just saw Edwin uh, on Monday, like, a week ago. Oh, you know what? <laughs> Please tell him I said hello. Please. Yeah. 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 And uh, so I was in, in the 80s and 90s. I was always in Toronto. I forget what the, one of the main streets were, where all the clubs were, but I, I love Canada. I love Toronto. Uh, 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 but no, I, I never um, worked with a Canadian artist. Was it young? But, Is never, it young? but, but Daryl, it's never too late. Is it young, late. young Street? In young, well, Young Street is one of the streets, but I don't know if that's it or not. Uh, anyway. The other one might be Queen Street. Queen Street. Queen Street. Oh, yeah. yes, maybe that's correct. 
And oh wait, yeah. somebody in here can get your email. My email. Um, well, why don't you reach whoever? I don't know who it is. I can't see that. Um, if you want to reach out to me, please reach out to me on Instagram and Facebook, Michael Anthony Alago. And I always, always, always get back to people. I'm not a person who doesn't get back to people. And and I'll say it's true because I, I messaged Michael over a year ago and he got back to me. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, uh, Martin and, and Michael, for doing this. Uh, I love these kind of stories and, and it's really important to hear this um, because, again, times are changing. And, and, you know, we've been in this remote state and mm -hmm. uh, hearing the stories of going out all the time. I remember doing that myself and uh, uh, just can't replace it. So, again, thank you. All right, so that does it for this week. I hope you enjoyed that conversation between uh, Michael Alago and Marin Atkins as much as I did the first time I heard it. Now, that took place at last year's 2022 edition of Indie 101. Of course, we have Indie 101 coming up very shortly in from May 1st to 3rd of this year. Um, unless you're listening to this today, like the day it comes out, March 9th, um, that is the last day to get a $40 discount on super early bird tickets for this year's Indie 101. However, there is a, I believe, a $20 discount on tickets uh, for the next few weeks before it goes to full price. So don't miss out on that and uh, keep up on what's planned as the details emerge uh, at Indie101.com. And before we let you go, just one more quick shout out and big thank you to our sponsors and funders. Those again are Slate Music, CD Baby, CMRRA, Lyric Fine, Banzoogle, SEMA, The City of Toronto, Global Affairs Canada, Ontario Creates, Factor, Seneca College, and the SOCAN Foundation. And we also acknowledge that this project is funded in part by the Government of Canada. All right, big thank you to all of them. Hope you're having a good week. We'll see you back here again next Thursday.